Well, good morning. Good to be here with you this morning. I wanted to introduce some of my dearest friends to you. We have known Jim and Janet Wine now for, golly, what's it been, 20 years? We're old. But uh, my dear friends, uh, they are some of our oldest uh, dearest friends from my days at Foothill Bible Church in California. And uh, we served on staff together there. Uh, Jim has led many uh, short-term mission trips all around the world, and he has served, he and his family, uh, Janet, alongside him in the mission field in Argentina. Uh, how long were you guys there? Three years. And they now have a daughter who is uh, church planting down there, married uh, to one of the Argentinian uh, natives, a church planter. And um, just a dear family. Uh, we consider them our family. Uh, we've just, uh, they're choice servants for the Lord. And I hope you get a chance to just talk with them and meet them today and give them an Ambassador Bible Fellowship welcome. Um, and uh, just commend them to you as hopefully you can befriend them as well, because they have just been a blessing to us over the years. In fact, uh, when we came up here to move to Idaho, we stayed with them in their home while I was interviewing for the position that I currently have. And so um, so it's just they've been a blessing to us in so many ways. Uh, we just are thankful for them being here this morning. And it's a little intimidating that I have to preach in front of them, but but uh, that's OK. In fact, I was sitting down there thinking to myself, I really don't want to get up and preach this message this morning. Uh, because it's on temptation and sin, uh, which is a topic that I unfortunately am very familiar with. Uh, as all of you are, I'm sure. The, uh, the battle wages every day. Uh, I was thinking about the uh, headlines that we have seen recently, this war in Ukraine. You know, this has been a, a, a difficult, devastating, bloody battle. Many lives have been lost. Um, and it, it made me think back to the days when, uh, when men were drafted into the military. They would often go in as friends uh, so that they could serve on the battlefield together as friends and that they would support one another in the battle. Uh, the problem with that is it was more devastating for guys to lose their best friend than somebody who they had just met in the military. But I was thinking about that uh, in the sense that we are in this battle. We are in this struggle against temptation and sin every single day. And I started to feel discouraged about that and a little depressed as I was uh, putting this sermon together. And then it occurred to me that I've been sent into battle with my best friend, Jesus Christ. I am not in this battle alone. I, uh, I need not be discouraged. And uh, as I as I show you from the text today, uh, this this text can be a little heavy, but I want you to bear in mind that you're in this battle, not alone. That you have Christ with you, and that should encourage you this morning to wage war uh, and the, the battlefield is different. It's not 
fought on the plains. It's not fought in buildings and cities. It's a battlefront of the mind. It's a, it's a war for your soul. And, and the Apostle Paul encouraged believers to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And I want that to be kind of what informs us today as we look at this text in James. If you have your copy of God's Word, then turn to James chapter 1. We're just continuing through the book of James in our series here. And this morning we are talking about the topic of temptation and sin, and we're looking at verses 13 to 15. And James tells his audience, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I probably don't need to tell you this, but temptation is serious. And we need to be ready to fight it every single moment of every single day. Sin is deadly, and we need to kill it before it takes control of our lives, our character, and ultimately our destiny. We have to take it seriously. I can't emphasize that enough to you today. How many of you are battle-weary? How many of you have post-traumatic stress disorder from dealing with your own sin? It's a hard-fought battle every single day. I'm only 55 years old. I'll be 56 at the end of this month. And i got to tell you, I'm tired of fighting this battle. I am tired. I look forward to glory when I don't have to deal with my sin anymore. As you know, the, the background of this text, uh, we, we just to refresh your memory, the year is about 44 A.D. And the church has been under heavy persecution since about Acts chapter 2. You remember after many came to know Christ, the, the Jewish leadership sort of turned on the church. And now, at this time, persecution is also coming from Rome. And so many, many believers, followers of Christ, have been driven from their homelands. They've had their possessions stripped of them. Many have been killed for their faith in Christ. And so James the oldest half-brother of Jesus and the brother of Jude. He's now one of, the, one of the three pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He's a man who had denied that his brother was the Christ prior to the crucifixion and resurrection. But now 
He's a believer and follower in Christ. And now he is a leader of one of the most volatile congregations within the body of Christ. And these Christians who are being persecuted, they're accusing God of tempting them to sin by bringing these trials upon them. The first thing they've done when they've come under persecution is turn against God. So James writes this letter to give them the correct theological perspective on suffering. And in the midst of it, he's going to give us some very helpful perspective on the topic of temptation and sin. So, in the text before us this morning, uh, James is going to give us three instructions that will help us fight this battle of temptation and sin so that we might live victoriously in Christ. The first instruction is this. It's simple. Know your God. Know your God. Verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. This is a this is the main verb in these verses. Everything else kind of follows up underneath this. Let no one say that's the main verb. Let no one say it's it's actually a third person imperative. I I've told you this before in our language. It's always second person. But in Greek, it's a third person. In other words, let no one say, not uh, you don't say, but, but let it not be said. Don't even let the words come out of your mouth. When you're tempted, that somehow God is responsible for it. That's the instruction. James tells him, know your God, know his character, know his nature, know him. And and tempted here, we need to understand, is different than verse 2. Those were trials. Trials in verse 2. Here we're talking about temptation. The subject matter has changed now to actual temptations. And this is speaking of a temptation to lust, if you notice verses 14 and 15. Lust based on the context. So here's the thing, the the trial, the test has come upon these people. And in the midst of the test, these believers were tempted to ascribe evil to God. In other words, they feel tempted to sinful lust because of the situation they find themselves in. And so they're blaming God for that temptation to sin. Now, why would you do such a thing? You have to ask yourself. Well, the answer is because they want to release themselves from the responsibility of their own sin and the culpability for it. Why else would you blame God? Because you're sinning or about to sin, and if you can divert the attention away from yourself and to God, then you have a reason to be angry with Him. You have a reason for your sin. It's justified. 
You may think this is splitting hairs, but it's it's really not. Trials come by God's design. As we have seen in past weeks, for a purpose. To grow us in perseverance, in character, in maturity in Christ. But the sinful desires come from where? They come from within. So the trial may be there by God's design, but the inclinations of the heart is what causes one to enter into lust. And that is a very important distinction. So the content of what believers are not to say, just for rhetorical argument's sake, is phrased as if they were saying it. Right? Let no one say when he is tempted, in quotes, I'm being tempted by God. And this statement, it just betrays a general lack of knowledge about the person and the holiness of God. It also betrays an ignorance about the origin and the temptation to sin. It's pure ignorance. Can you think of any greater sin than to ascribe evil to God? I don't think it's possible. There can be no greater sin than for one to to blame God or ascribe evil motives to Him who is holy and pure. See, God's holiness is fundamental to all that He is. And some have even argued that it's His primary attribute from which all the others stem. God's holiness is who He is. And so to blame Him for your evil... Beloved, that's horrible. That is a horrible sin. Now notice in the text the word for. I've told you this before. This is just moving the argument along and it's subordinate and it's explanatory. So don't say, don't blame God for your problems. Here's why. Here's why. And this verse teaches us two things about God, two truths about his nature. And the first is this. He says, for God cannot be tempted by evil. That's a base statement. He's just saying God can't be tempted by evil. This is the only occurrence of this word, by the way, in the New Testament. And there's a bit of an argument over the meaning here. It's not saying that God is untempted or unable to be tempted. While that may be true, that's not what it's talking about in the context here. This carries the idea of God being untested or untried with temptation. It means that he has no experience of evil or any part in it whatsoever. 
He is, if you will, unversed in evil. And as a result, he does not and cannot tempt any man or woman to do evil. So in other words, it's inconceivable that it should come into the mind of God to tempt men to lust. It's fundamental to what we know to be true about God. He's ethically pure and He's perfect in holiness. God is light. And in Him there is no darkness. So His his absolute freedom from the power of temptation precludes any possibility of Him tempting others to sin. And that leads to the next statement about the nature of God. Therefore, He Himself does not tempt anyone. Since God cannot be tempted, since God has no experience of evil or any part in it, He cannot possibly tempt others to it. It's a foregone conclusion based upon what we know to be true about God. His nature is pure and He is holy. And... I think this verse is perhaps alluding to our biggest failure and weakness as human beings. As fallen sons of Adam, finger-pointing goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Am I right? Blaming others for our temptation, our evil desires, our subsequent sin. Some of us blame our parents Boy, is that popular nowadays. My parents made me this way. They made me do this. Some blame our our co-workers. Some blame our bosses, our friends, our siblings. But worst of all, the worst I can think of is people blaming God. And it's merely a tactic, beloved. It's a, it's a tactic in the battle to divert attention away from yourself and to blame somebody else. God made me this way. It's not my fault. You know, despite what we think, this, this text is all about, we've talked about it in the past weeks, suffering in the midst of trials. We've talked about this. Um, Despite what we think, suffering and sin do not need to go hand in hand. Grace and humility are, are cultivated in the garden of suffering and trials. And it's only when one discovers their, their true poverty that they find the unfathomable riches in Christ at their disposal. Grace and humility are are cultivated in the garden of suffering and trials. So what am I trying to say here? Well, stop blaming others for your sin. That's, That's the point. Stop blaming other people. This is a hard one. We are blame shifters, beloved. It's in our nature. It came from our great, 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 great granddaddy. 
to shovel off our responsibility for our sin and to blame somebody else. It's the easy way out. In particular, if you think God is somehow responsible for your problems with sin and temptation or lust, beloved, you've got to ditch that thinking now. In the midst of the test or the trial, you should become more reliant upon God. As I said, you're, you're not going into battle alone. You have Christ to help you. He's not your enemy. He's your friend. He has not brought this on you to tempt you to sin. He's brought it on you to grow you in Christ-likeness. Hebrews 12, He is your heavenly Father, and, and He would not claim you as a son. He could not claim you as a son if He didn't discipline you. Remember, suffering is a sign of sonship. It's evidence of sonship. I think Jerry Bridges had a good quote here. He said, as we grow in holiness, we grow in hatred of sin. And God, being infinite holy, has an infinite hatred of sin. Because of that, beloved... If this is the case, and it is, how could he possibly tempt us to sin? I think this is a, a fundamental understanding, and I think that's why James started these verses with that statement. You need to know your God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. He's infinitely holy, and he has no experience of evil or any part in it. He could not possibly be the one tempting you to sin. So the first way to combat sin is, is to know its origin and to know the truth about God and His holiness. Second instruction, control your desires. Verse 14. Look at the text. But, there's a contrast here. God doesn't tempt anybody, but in contrast, where does the temptation come from? Yeah. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. You should go over to James 4 and have a look there at this point. It's, uh, I think it's instructive. What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Where does lust come from? Let's turn inside, beloved. You can't build a wall around yourself to keep the sin out. You'd only wall it in. So if God is not the one to blame for the temptation and sinful desires, then, then where does the temptation come from? Well, this verse gives us a, an interesting metaphor to help us to understand how our hearts are given over to evil desires. 
James says each one uh, right at the start. Notice that it's the word hekastos in, in Greek. And, and the word emphasizes our individual responsibility. It's each one of you. Each one is responsible for their own lust. So there may be external inducements to temptation for sure. But James is tapping into the real cause of lust here. And I think that's important for us to see. It says each one is tempted. And the word tempted is neutral. And the context determines the type of testing that is going on. The type of testing that is being described. This testing can mean to test with good motives. Uh, John 6, 6. Uh, you want to write these down and maybe look at them later. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Revelation 2, 2. And it's used in association, in association with God sending trials into our lives for our growth. You can also look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. You can look at Hebrews 11.17. And you can look at Revelation 3.10. But here's the thing. It can also be used in association with bad testing that might lead one to failure or perplexity. It's not the test itself, but it's how the person responds to the test. And here, in James' argument... It's in the sense of one being lured into sin. I'll have you look at 1 Corinthians 7.5 for this. Flip to the left. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. So stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see that? This is talking about the marriage union and not depriving one of the privileges of marriage. Not withholding yourself from your spouse, because if you do for too long, you'll be tempted. You'll be tempted. You can also look at 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. First Thessalonians 3, 5. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So see, this, this temptation is alluring to sin. And just hold on to that thought. Keep it in the back of your mind because it'll come up again later. The idea that he's tackling here, though, is, is a temptation, but it's a temptation to lust. 
the word temptation itself is neutral. The to lust is the problem. Where does the lust come from? In our language, lust is typically associated with the body, right? When we think of lust, we think of people committing adultery or, or chasing after the opposite sex. But the Greeks associated lust with the desires of the soul. And this is important. The Greeks associated it with the desires of the soul and the cravings of the heart. It's the cravings. It's the desires. And so it's not the weakness of your flesh that's the problem. It's your soul and your volition. What is your volition? It's your will. Your will is the problem. In other words, the will plans to sin. It's one thing we know to be true about the will. It's your volition. So when you say, uh, you know, you need to follow your heart. Gee, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I would not follow my heart. Because the heart is where evil springs from. And the temptation can come from the outside and it can induce uh, the person to sin. And, and that's where we get the metaphor here. In this metaphor, uh, desire, turn back to James if you're not there. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. You see that? It's a metaphor. Desire plays the part of the temptress here, and our will plans to sin. So if sinful desires are not repented of and turned away from, it leads to uncontrolled lust. Lust is an old word for craving. It just means to have a desire for. And the idea here is a desire or a craving for things that are sinful and in opposition to God's will. So here's the temptation, and our lust and our desire goes after it. Does that make sense? And that's the picture here. There are two words that ramp up the imagery of the word lust. And uh, they're metaphors from the fishing world. This is Idaho. You guys fish, right? You'll understand this. This is where things go off the rails and turn into lust. So you want to note this. Uh, He uses the phrase being carried away. And, And this is the only use of this word in the New Testament. And it's a fishing metaphor. And it describes a fish being drawn out from its cover of safety. I used to have uh, African cichlids, and they were cave dwellers. And they would, they would take the rocks, and they would put them in their mouth, and they would spit them out, and, and they would keep burrowing until they made themselves a little hole underneath the rocks, the bigger rocks in the aquarium. They're cave dwellers, and they felt safe in the caves. And they were safe in the caves. In our sense, we, we are safe undercover. And the temptation comes along and dangles in front of us, and what do we do? 
We come out from our cover of safety because we see the bait. It looks appealing to us. We want it. And so there's where the struggle begins. Are you going to take the bait or are you going to resist? And that's where the second word comes in. And being enticed. And this sort of ramps up the metaphor another notch. It strengthens grammatically the preceding word. It's another word from the hunting or fishing realm, and it basically means to entice by bait. It, at its core, it means to take the bait. So in the one word, you're drawn out from the cover of safety. The other word, you take the bait. You bite the hook to your own peril. And the metaphor is not meant to picture seduction from the right path. This is important. It's not like you're on the right path and you're being seduced away. That's not the point. The point is you're being allured out of security into danger. You're, you're walking with Christ. You're under the cover. Uh, you're... In the Word of God, you're flooding your mind with scriptures, and all of a sudden you see bait, and you take notice of it. And you're lured out, and you take the bait. You take the bait. So what do we learn from this? Well, the big point is this. Desire which tempts and the will which consents both belong to the individual. It doesn't come from anywhere but you. Right? Desire which tempts and the will which consents both belong to you. They're your problem. <laughs> and the only way to overcome a problem with lust is to realize that the problem does not originate outside of yourself. The problem is with your soul. You have to take ownership of it. Are you going to leave your safe place and take the bait? I was reminded of polar bears and how Eskimos used to catch polar bears. They would make a tripod out of three sticks. They would tie a knife and dangle it in the middle of the tripod. Oh, why? Because you, you can't walk up to an Eskimo or to a polar bear and say, give me your hide. And, and um, you know, they're, they're big, right? <laughs> so I think this is an ingenious way to bait them and, and capture them is they dangle this knife. And when it flashes in the sun, it catches the bear's attention when the sun glints off it. And so the bear comes up. And what do bears do when they see something they like? They lick it. And what does the knife do? It cuts their tongue. And they taste what? They taste their own blood. And so what do they do? They keep on licking. They keep on licking. They keep on cutting their tongue. They keep on bleeding until they fall on the ground in a lump and die from blood loss. That's the picture, beloved. They take the bait. To their own peril. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, 
watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. Watch it. Watch your heart. Guard it. Keep it safe. Lock it away. The, the word diligence here is the word mishmar in Hebrew. Uh, it's the idea of a prison. It's a jail. It's a place of confinement. Take your heart and stick it in jail and don't let it get near the things of this world that might tempt it. That's the idea. Put it in jail away from the bait. Keep it safe. Guard it. Protect it. I'm not advocating for a departure from anything pleasurable in life. Don't think I'm a wet blanket here. I'm a fun guy. But I am advocating that you would keep yourself from things that are not meant for you to have. Things that God prohibits that will take hold of your soul. Be wary. Be careful. And you need to be proactive in the battle if you want victory. You've got to be proactive. You have to prepare ahead of time as to how you're going to respond when the trial comes upon you. And beloved, it's going to come upon you. How many of you have gone through life so far without a single trial? Yeah, that's what I thought. If you don't guard your heart, if you don't keep it under lock and key, if you don't protect it and deprive yourself ahead of time of sinful desires, then when external inducements come, you're going to take the bait every time. You're going to take the bait every time, and it will ultimately form your character, and it will ultimately determine your destiny. Men, I'm speaking to you. Do you hear my voice? The issue is not what can I get away with. The issue is how can I honor a holy God? Guard your heart. And know that you're not alone in the battle. Your best friend is in the foxhole beside you. But it is a battle. And nobody has given you permission to lay down your weapons. The order has not come for you to surrender in this battle. You're to fight to the last man. Fight to the death. Don't give up. We need to know our God. We need to understand the truth about God and His holiness. We need to control our desires. And I'm not just saying this to you. I'm talking to myself here too. Third, you need to kill your sin. Kill your sin. Verse 15. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
I told you this is uplifting. This is why I, I just couldn't wait to preach this to you this morning, right? Well, the metaphors are changing here to one of conception and birth, obviously. So he says, when lust has conceived, and, and conceived literally means to grasp together. An interesting word, to grasp together. And the idea here is lust grabbing hold of her victim. Lust is, is sort of being personified, if you will, as a woman who has conceived a child of sin. A.T. Robertson says the yielding of the will to lust is the conception. So your will drops its guard, you give in to lust, and boom, you're pregnant. You're pregnant with sin. In other words, according to James, once the will has given in to its ungodly desires, the conception of sin has taken place. Like that movie Alien. You now have an alien inside of you. <laughs> you. Waiting to burst out. The big bad. And it says it gives birth. And the word is tikto in the Greek. And it simply means to give birth by a woman or a, a female in itself. This case is obviously a woman. It's just sin gives birth to something. When sin is accomplished, after the sin is conceived and it has reached full development, that's what the word accomplished means, full development. It's full term. It brings forth death. You have a full term child. And that child is death. So the child of lust is sin. The child of sin is death. And it's, a, it's just a vivid picture of, unfortunately, abortion. The child that is born of lust is, is dead at birth. So to summarize, sin is, is sort of represented as a female here. And she's pregnant with death. And when the baby is full grown, she bears it or brings forth death. And the guilty party here is the will that embraces the temptress. It's the will. The will gives in, just like the Proverbs. The will gives in, embraces the temptress, and the product of that union is a child of death. So, how does that relate to this passage? Well, the point of the metaphor is this. Temptation to sin cannot be from God while the trial is from Him. Because the product of a union with sin is death. It cannot be from God. Death, by the way, I think this is where they got in the Avengers, the name Thanos from. It's the word Thanatos. And it means death. <laughs> it's just not clear how it's being used in this passage. There's several possibilities. It could be physical death. It could be spiritual death. It could be eternal death. 
Some have suggested another option, and that it's somehow a reference to both physical death and eternal death, as opposed to the life that has been promised by God. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's a tough debate, but death is death. I see dead people all the time. And death is death. It's not pretty. Just for the sake of clarity, by the way, you know, James draws a distinction between desire and sin. Did you notice that? That being tempted is is and of itself is and of itself. That's right. Is and of itself. It's not necessarily sinful. Being tempted is not necessarily sinful. Some desires are natural and innocent. And here James is making the point that desire is involuntary, involuntarily, and instinctively awakened in this person. Which in and of itself is not wrong. Right? Just because the bait has been dropped and you look at it, that's not the problem. The problem is when you start desiring it and craving it and wanting it and you can't stop. You can't necessarily control external inducements to temptation. I guess that's the point. But if you take the bait, then it becomes sinful. So what do we do with all this? Well, we need to stop sin from coming to full term or full development. Yeah, that's right, Pastor. You're advocating for abortion. Yes, I am. Abortion of sin. John Owen said this, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So you ask yourself, well, how do I kill sin? How do I kill it? If I'm supposed to fight it every day, well, the reality is you may be in for a long, dirty, nasty fight on the battlefront of your mind. Hand-to-hand combat is dirty and nasty. I always tell people you could consider your spiritual life like a garden that needs to be cultivated. How many of you like gardening? This is a good metaphor. So what do you have to do to your garden? You have to weed it, right? You have to pull the weeds. If you don't pull the weeds, what happens? It it takes over. It takes over the fruit. It kills off your veggies. It ruins your garden. So you have to pull weeds and you have to tend your garden constantly. And if you don't put good things in place of the weeds, what happens? The weeds just keep coming back, right? So you have to cultivate the ground. You have to till the soil. You have to pull the weeds. And you have to put stuff in there to replace it. And that is, beloved, a picture of repentance. 
You put off the sin that is contaminating the garden, if you will. You renew your mind with the Word of God and the truth about Christ and God and everything else. And you put on right behaviors, godly behaviors, new behaviors that bring honor and glory to Him. You have to cultivate the garden. And if you don't stay on top of it, the weeds will just come back. And your good plants are going to get choked out. If you don't like gardening, then think about WWF. You're in the ring with Hulk Hogan. You're in a wrestling match, right, with this huge opponent. And you're going to have to wrestle. You're in for a struggle. It's going to be a tough struggle, especially if the sin has been developing for a while. You're going to have to bring the sin to its knees. A hammer drop, right? Imagine yourself climbing up the corner of the ropes and jumping on this opponent and tackling it and pinning it down. That's what you have to do. You have to wrestle it. So I have 11 steps here I'm going to give you as to how to kill a particular sin. And this is not inspired, and I probably left a million things out, but this is my list of 11 things. And the first is to pray. Pray for help. Ask God to help you to overcome your sin. You're not alone in the battle. You've got God to help you. You've got His Spirit indwelling you. You've got Christ interceding for you. You can have victory over sin and temptation. How about we call sin what it is in Scripture? You're not an alcoholic. You're a drunkard. Alcoholic is a disease. Drunkard is a behavior. You understand the difference? You're not addicted to pornography. You're acting sexually immoral. There's a, there's a difference between a disease and a sin. One is an act of the will. Confess it to God. If we confess our sins, He is what? He's faithful and He's just to forgive us of our sin and to what? Cleanse us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse our conscience. Seek His forgiveness. Confess it to others to hold you accountable. Again, you're not alone in the battle. Not only do you have Christ, but you have the church to help you. And, and I can just say a word here about this church. People aren't going to judge you here. People are going to come alongside you and help you in your struggle. They're going to show you love. Confess it to others to hold you accountable. Seek their forgiveness if you've sinned against them. 
reconcile and restore with those you have hurt. We're down to number eight. Renew your mind with the Word of God. I always say this, the Word of God is the universal solvent that dilutes the power of sin. The more you intake the Word of God, the weaker sin becomes in your life. It's a solvent. Nine, trust Christ for forgiveness. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can repent of the sin, but then there's the faith in Christ that must follow. Relying upon Him. And alter your behavior to avoid future temptation and sin in the particular area of struggle. If you have trouble with your credit cards, stay out of the shopping mall. If you struggle with alcohol, you stay out of a bar, right? If you're struggling with your eyesight, then take a different route. Go a different way if there are billboards or pictures that are bothering you. You understand what I mean? Alter your behavior. Do things differently. Do what's uncomfortable instead of what's comfortable. And 11, I don't think we say this enough, but find joy in Christ. Find joy in Him. If you're truly repentant, you will have a countenance of joy. And that's just my short list. Let me summarize it. Genuine repentance requires three elements. You want to write this down. Three elements. First consists of a a turnabout or a change in your thinking concerning sin. Okay? It's It's a change of opinion about sin and what is sin based on the Word of God and what He has revealed. Second, there's a turnabout or a, a feeling concerning sin. There's remorse. There's regret. There's sorrow because you've sinned. Because God hates it. And the sin is hateful in and of itself. Right? And lastly, there's a redirection of the will that results in a change of behavior. So... True repentance involves the emotion, the intellect, and the will. It's all three. So in order to combat sin and temptation victoriously, you need to know your God. You need to know the truth about Him and His holiness. You need to control your desires, and your lusts. Put them under lock and key. And you need to kill your sin before it kills you. You're in a battle, beloved. You're in a daily battle. And the order has not been given to surrender or to lay down your weapon. The order is to fight. To take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. May He get the victory in your life.